Hi guys, welcome to episode 14 of the Irish Balance podcast. I really hope everyone who has listened to all the episodes in the podcast so far is enjoying it. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that it's now on Spotify and iTunes as well, which believe me is an absolute technological achievement on my behalf. It was a bit of an uphill struggle guys, but I got there. Anyone who knows me will know that I'm maybe what you might call technologically challenged. So I feel like a bit of a computer whiz might have um, gotten my podcast up on Spotify and iTunes a little bit sooner, but I'm very proud that I made it there. So if you do want to tune in that way instead of on Podbean, you know where to find it now. There's something really cool about seeing your podcast on iTunes as well. If you're totally new to my podcast and you're totally new to me, my name is Kira. I'm an Irish girl and a qualified medical doctor. I'm really passionate about preventative medicine, public health and health promotion, particularly how our lifestyles affect our health through the food we eat, the exercise we undertake, how we manage our stress, our sleep and our social well-being. And I use my blog, theirishbalance.com, my social media, and now this podcast to show you guys how we can empower ourselves to live happy, healthy lifestyles full of balance and not restriction. I'm absolutely loving creating this podcast and it is a little bit overwhelming to see how many of you guys are tuning into it, which is really, really cool. I know a lot of people have been asking about the part two of the interview I did with my friend and fellow doctor, Seppi Mary. We do plan to record a part two episode, which is going to be focused a little bit more in depth on sleep and maybe a little bit more chat about the blue zones, because that was a really popular topic with you guys. So stay tuned for that. It will be coming in the next couple of weeks towards later March and April. Seppi's really keen to get back on the podcast and I can't wait to bring her back on again. And as always, if there are any topics that you'd like to see me cover on the podcast, just drop me an email or a DM on Instagram or tweet me. That's the easiest way to get in touch. I always love hearing what topics you guys want to hear. And as I've said before, there is going to be um, a lot more interviews on the Irish Balance podcast. I'm just having a very busy March at the moment. So bear with me and they'll be coming up later on in spring. So this week on the podcast, I asked you guys what you wanted me to talk about. So I gave you a couple of options and all of the topics I'm about to mention are those which will come to the podcast in due course, but I wanted to see what you guys wanted to hear about next. So on my Instagram, I put up a sticker and asked if you guys wanted me to talk about healthy aging, about alcohol in Ireland, um, about some thoughts I've been having about doctors and their role in dietary advice. And the vote was overwhelmingly healthy aging. So that is what we are going for this week. And in fact, it's something I've been reading about quite a bit recently as part of my master's. If you didn't know, I'm doing a full-time master's in public health and nutrition at UCD at the moment. Now, there are a lot of challenges that face our healthcare system in Ireland. And we'd hear a lot of chat about the rising prevalence of overweight and obesity in Ireland, and also the prevalence of chronic disease. What's very, very relevant to these topics and a topic in its own right is the fact that we have a very, very rapidly rising aging population in Ireland. Life expectancy in Ireland is pretty high. So it's 83 and a half years for women and 79 years for men, which is pretty comparable with the rest of Europe. And as I've said on the podcast before, particularly in my episode about public health, modern medicine has made huge, huge strides in the last century. We've seen a complete change in the causes of disease, 
Previously, it was what we call the communicable diseases, so infectious diseases. But due to many landmark public health advances, such as providing clean water and sanitation, and this is more obviously true for developed than developing countries, clean water and sanitation, vaccination, antibiotic use, all of these things mean that actually the leading cause of mortality worldwide is now chronic diseases, the non-communicable kind, the kind that we don't spread from one to another. Now, with the great life expectancy rates that we have, we know, therefore, that the Irish population is growing and it's getting older. And inevitably, a larger, older population does create an increased demand for health and social care. And this is particularly true with regard to managing chronic diseases, which do tend to stack up the older we get. In fact, 65% of those over 65 and 4 out of 5 of those over 85 in Ireland have two or more chronic conditions. And we know that the treatment and management of chronic illnesses account for a large share of health resources. Figures in Ireland say that's about 80% of GP visits, 40% of hospital admissions, and about three quarters of inpatient days in hospitals. And it's predicted in Ireland that by 2020, the number of adults with these chronic diseases will have increased by 40%. And this is mostly true in the older population. For example, Irish figures would say that between 2010 and 2020, the number of adults with diabetes is expected to rise by 30%. The number with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, by 23%. The number with high blood pressure by 28%. And the number with coronary heart disease by 31%. This is a key reason why I am so passionate about public health, because I think what this tells us is that we really need prevention to be a strong focus of our health system. Looking at a population approach to prevent these chronic illnesses from developing in the first place. Looking at what's called a life course approach, where we think about how a person starts out in life and the different factors that affect their health from infancy, childhood, teenage years, young adulthood, all the way up to the older ages that we're seeing more of now. And also considering what aren't talked about enough, the social determinants of health. Things like income, education, what occupation we have, what socioeconomic status a person might be, the environment they live in, the housing that they live in, what access to transport they have, what public policies are in place by the government, etc. And then, of course, there's lots and lots of other international factors that affect our health. We've all seen the climate change headlines over the last year, particularly, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Suffice to say, all of these things impact on our conditions for healthy living. It might seem like I've gone off on a little bit of a tangent, and I know I do have a tendency to do that. But I wanted to say all that as an introduction because as this episode is going to focus on aging, I wanted to give you guys a bit of a backdrop to the role that individual and environmental factors play in shaping our health and how this does occur from birth all the way up to older age. So we know that currently in Ireland there's about 55,000 people living with dementia and this number is expected to increase to 113,000 by 2036. Many people consider that dementia is an inevitable part of aging but it's not. I'm going to just open this by giving you the definition of dementia from the National Institute on Aging in America, because I think a lot of people are very confused about what dementia is. And given how prevalent it is and how it's expected to become increasingly so, I think it's really important that we do understand what it is and that we remove some of the stigma that exists around a diagnosis of dementia and confusion too. 
So the National Institute on Aging defines dementia as the loss of cognitive functioning. So that's things like thinking, memory, reasoning, and a person's behavioral abilities to varying extents. But for a diagnosis of dementia, this has to be to such an extent that it interferes with the person's daily life and activities. So some examples of these cognitive functions, as I've said, thinking, memory, your reasoning, your language skills also are, can be affected. Uh, visual perception, speech, problem solving, being able to look after yourself, manage your finances, do your shopping, being able to focus and concentrate and pay attention. So as you can see, it can affect a huge range of our cognitive capacities, all of which influence our ability to live independently and manage ourselves. And what a lot of people don't know is that there's a few different types of dementia. So the most commonly talked about example is Alzheimer's. And that's because it's the most common type. But not all dementia equals Alzheimer's dementia. Dementia is what we call an umbrella term. And it's not a one-size-fits-all diagnosis. So Alzheimer's, like I say, is a particular type of dementia. But there are a few other less common types. And regardless of diagnosis, the degree to which dementia affects each person is a spectrum. Like any disease, it will affect every person in a unique way. And there will be some similarities between people too, of course. The early deficits that a person might experience could be very minimally noticeable or very minimally affecting their day-to-day -day functioning. But the nature of dementia is that it is progressive. It's a progressive neurodegenerative process. And so it does become more pronounced and challenging to manage over time. It mostly affects the elderly, but it can affect people younger than this in some early onset forms, usually in a person's 40s or 50s. But again, that's a much, much less common, but it is important to know that. Some of the less common um, subtypes of dementia that you might have heard about include vascular dementia. There can be a mixed dementia. Um, there's one called Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, dementia associated with Parkinson's disease. That's just some examples. Now, as I said, dementia is not caused by or a normal part of the aging process. Last year, just before I started my master's, I attended a brain health and brain disease conference at UCD, which is organized by the Dementia and Neurodegeneration Network in Ireland. And it was attended by both healthcare professionals and the general population. And that was the key message that they wanted to get across, that it's not a normal part of the aging process. The other key message that they shared was that we do need to promote a lot of education and awareness about dementia to remove, like I say, that confusion and stigma. And importantly, to make us aware of the simple changes that we can make to our lifestyles to keep our brains healthy from a young age all the way up to an old age. And happily for us, much of these changes overlap with the things that I like to talk about in my blog, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, and social well-being. Now, before we get into those, I'm just going to briefly discuss a couple of the risk factors for dementia. And similar to the diagnosis, the causes or the risk factors are not a one-size-fits-all. But by knowing what these risk factors are, it does help empower us to keep our brains healthy throughout life. So, like many different chronic diseases, there are some non-modifiable risk factors and modifiable ones. There's only very few non-modifiable risk factors, and these were also reiterated at the conference I attended. So these include age, which, note, is a risk factor, not necessarily a cause, a family history, and having a diagnosis of trisomy 21, which uh, colloquially is known uh, more commonly as Down syndrome, but trisomy 21 is the medical term. 
Now, looking at the more lengthy list of modifiable risk factors, and again, these are also presented at the conference, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, coronary heart disease, smoking, excessive alcohol intake, obesity, low levels of physical activity, and depression. So you can see a lot of those do come back to those healthy lifestyle basics. At the time, I wrote a blog post on this topic too because I really felt it was important to share some really, really simple tips to keep our brains healthy throughout our lives. And it was mostly based on this list of modifiable risk factors. Now, looking at the first three that I mentioned, which include cardiovascular and metabolic health components. As I say to anyone who sends me a message on Instagram, looking for medical advice, um, social media, and this includes podcasts, are not a medium for individualized medical advice. So suffice to say for this section, we won't be getting into specifics. But as I said in the blog post, if a person has a diagnosis of high blood pressure and or high cholesterol, it's very important to be well linked in with your GP because controlling both of these things to within the accepted normal ranges via lifestyle modifications, medication or a combination as managed between you and your doctor has a really powerful impact, however intangible that may seem, on a person's risk of dementia. The second aspect that I spoke about in my blog post, and it's going to be its own blog post pretty soon, is smoking cessation. And so I'm going to leave the detail on that to when I actually have the blog post on it. And I can do a podcast on that topic if you guys want. I think it's pretty well accepted by most people now that there are extensive health risks posed by cigarette smoking and through the inhalation of second-hand, second cigarette, second-hand cigarette smoke. There's absolutely no benefit from smoking to your health or to those around you who inhale that second-hand smoke. None whatsoever. So, as I said, I'll go into more detail on this in the blog post, but getting help to quit starts with help from your GP. And that includes even just social smoking. This is particularly true for young people. As I've said, we're increasingly recognising in public health the importance of a life course approach to health. That being healthy throughout life requires managing these risk factors throughout life. Sounds simple, but it's true. We are not invincible. And the way we live our lives today can absolutely have an effect on the health that we will have in a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades all the way up to over the age of 100. And I'll leave that aspect of it at that. Now, moving on to alcohol. Again, I am going to do my own podcast episode on alcohol. And this will sound like a basic point, but you know my blog is The Irish Balance, as is my podcast. And the key here with alcohol is moderation, not necessarily deprivation. So in Ireland, the guidelines we have and there's a great website, alcoholireland.ie, and ask about alcohol. But for men, it's 17 standard drinks spread out over the course of the week with at least two to three alcohol-free days. And note, that's not a recommendation to have 17 standard drinks. That's a maximum weekly limit. For women, it's 11 standard drinks spread out over the course of the week with at least two to three alcohol-free days. Now, special occasions aside, it is pretty fair to say in Ireland, as a society, we have a tendency to lead towards a binging style of consumption of alcohol. And in fact, it's often referenced as part of our culture by people who visit. Binge drinking, by the way, is when you have six or more drinks in one go. Now, while we often joke about going for one in Ireland or having a few, and there is nothing wrong, per se, with socialising 
using alcohol, there is something wrong with regularly exceeding the guidelines. Predominantly because there are a lot of negative effects this can have on our long and short term physical and mental health. For example, implications for our liver, for our heart, for those around us, if there are road accidents or if there is an increased uh, risk of violence due to fights, for example. And of course, our brain health. Many people outside of the healthcare sphere do know about the potential damage that alcohol can do to our liver in the long term, but we often forget about our brain, except for maybe having a headache the following day from a hangover. But actually, long-term alcohol excess can do quite a bit of damage to our brain. And the website I've mentioned, Ask About Alcohol, does actually list quite a few symptoms that can result from alcohol-related brain damage. And it is definitely something that I have seen as a doctor and can be really devastating to a person's life. These symptoms and signs include poor memory, coordination issues, mood changes, difficulties with learning and concentration, and also an increased risk of mental health problems with alcohol excess, such as anxiety and depression. As I said, there are more serious alcohol-related brain syndromes that can result from long-term excess, but it is beyond the scope of this podcast. The take-home is, as with so many aspects of our health, moderation, not deprivation, and being aware of what our guidelines for safe consumption are. Although in the case of alcohol, it's probably less about guidelines for safe consumption and more about guidelines for maximum limits. But I digress. Stay tuned for the podcast on that topic. Now, looking at nutrition and our brain. As you guys know, I'm a doctor. I am studying nutrition this year as part of my public health master's, but I am not a dietitian or nutritionist. So there's nothing prescriptive about this piece. Really, what was emphasized at the conference I went to, and also from the little bit of research I've done into this area, is that the same healthy eating principles that we talk about in our Irish healthy eating guidelines apply for our brains. Consuming a healthy, balanced diet based on whole foods throughout our lives. Making sure we hit our five to seven portions of fruits and vegetables a day. Getting lots of fiber into our diets. And as I've mentioned many a time, focusing on, favorite phrase, moderation, not deprivation. The other nutritional point that's just worth mentioning before I move on is the omega-3 fatty acids, um, EPA and DHA. And these are felt to be pretty critical for normal brain function and development through all stages of life. Where do we get them? Well, you might have heard about eating your fatty fish. So, yep, it is absolutely probably our best source, which is why it's recommended that at least one of our servings of two servings of fish per week be fatty fish such as salmon or mackerel. We can get an omega-3 called ALA in some plant food sources like walnuts, flax seeds, chia seeds, but we don't really convert any meaningful amount to that to EPA and DHA. And these fatty acids are thought to be really, really important for brain function and are also abundant in the cell membranes of our brain cells. So if you're a fatty fish fan, that is another reason to get salmon or an alternative on your plate. Now, my personal favorite, physical activity. So obviously I've done a podcast episode on physical activity, so I'm not going to hammer it home too much. But what I want to say here is that physical inactivity is a risk factor for dementia and therefore physical activity has a preventative role and it is also 100% important and okay to maintain a degree of physical activity if a person has a diagnosis of dementia 
And obviously that should be done under the guidance of a general practitioner and probably a physiotherapist too. But I'm going to focus on the prevention piece here. So in case you haven't heard me say it enough times, here's a little reminder of our guidelines. For aerobic activity, at least 30 minutes a day of moderate activity on five days a week or 150 minutes per week. Or vigorous activity, 75 minutes per week. So moderate activity is where you can talk, which can't sing, so a brisk walk. Vigorous activity is probably where you can't really sing, so that's probably more like cycling or swimming and you probably can't really talk either, especially if you're swimming. Then it's also really important to engage in activity that increases our muscular strength and balance on at least two days per week. So that might be things like weight training or yoga or tai chi, for example, or some sports count too. And that's the guidelines for adults age 18 to 64 and those age 65 and above too. That is a really, really valuable action we can all take to maximize our brain health. And pretty much every other aspect of our health, if we could wrap up all of the health benefits that exercise provides for our physical and mental health into a pill, we would be taking it without question. And as I always say, find the type you enjoy because that is what you're going to stick to. Now, final point is all about community and engagement. And I'm going to finish with this because it's not really a risk factor, but it is really, really important for a person with a diagnosis of dementia and their family and carers. And sometimes family and friends are the carers as opposed to healthcare professional. A person with a diagnosis of dementia and their family and friends need support, physical, social and emotional, through family, friends and community. And it's really important to raise awareness around the many, many great resources, societies and events that are available in different communities in Ireland to the patient and those around them. And I think it's really important that that information be given to a person at diagnosis. Just one example is how the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland run the Alzheimer's Cafe in various different locations, which is a really nice way for carers and patients to connect and share their experience. I also want to give a really awesome shout out to CL Blue Ireland here, who are a not-for-profit organisation who have a strong presence in Ireland, and I absolutely love what they do. They provide life-enhancing exercise programmes to older adults and patient groups. They're the first specific effort to promote exercise among these groups in Ireland and they want to improve overall well-being and I was delighted during the summer to attend one of their COPD and me classes in the community and it was just amazing to see the benefits they bring to each person and how inclusive their classes are. They design their programs with a preventative approach and promote autonomy, autonomy and well-being of older people and people with chronic disease too, working towards an independent and happy life. CL Blue run a dementia gym class and I know that they're constantly working on building new programs and they wrote a really great um, section of my blog post on healthy aging about the different exercises that might be suitable for a person with diagnosis of dementia so I'd highly recommend anyone interested check out the CL Blue website and you'll find that on their blog. They highlight how exercise helps maintain brain function as well as optimize it early on in life. And they highlight the physical benefits of exercise people that live with dementia and also the benefits that can be got for mental and psychological health and particularly reducing social isolation. So it really ties in quite nicely with the final point I've made about community and engagement. Okay, and that is going to be a wrap, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this post. Um, as a doctor, I had a rotation obviously in geriatrics during my training and 
saw many, many patients with diagnoses of dementia, both as inpatients and in clinic. And of course, it's not just limited to when you do a rotation in geriatric medicine. Because we have an aging population, it is something that you see a lot of in every specialty. And it is a really, really important public health issue. We really need to promote awareness around it to educate the population in Ireland and also with that to reduce the fear and stigma that can often affect the person and the family that are faced with a diagnosis of dementia to open up that conversation and allow people to share their experiences which hopefully might help us all cope a little bit better. Promoting awareness also raises awareness about the risk factors and allows us to learn a little bit more about the preventive approach that we can take early on in life to keep our brains healthy for as long as we can. So as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave a comment on the podcast or leave a comment on my Instagram or drop me a DM. Um, Or like I say, tweet me, email me, you know where to find me. So at The Irish Balance on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. www.theirishbalance.com is my blog and obviously you know where the podcast is. So I will talk to you guys next week and I look forward to hearing from you. Bye.